Good morning, church. We are with you again at this venue this morning, and we just appreciate you allowing us into your living rooms. And I know you probably all have your favorite best beverage, so here's looking at you. I wanted to say this morning as well that uh, watching CBS and NBC and some of the news shows, what what's happening, some of the guys on there is cutting their own hair. So, Eric, if you're watching, I might look different next week because I'm going to do experiment this, this week with the scissors. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. I hope that um, you're safe and you're following pretty much the guidelines. Um, and I hope that when you go to our website that you check those prayer requests out and actually pray for these people. Um, let's, pr- let's pray right now. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for this time that we can be together. A little different situation, but our hearts are one. And uh, I know, Holy Spirit, that you interact between us, and I appreciate that. So uh, I just pray for all the people that's uh, sent their name in or called us or texted us or whatever and put their name on the prayer list, that we lift them up. And as you go to them, Lord, I just pray they feel your presence in a mighty way. And for everybody that's watching this uh, this morning, that, that you bless them this morning. And uh, they allow you into their hearts and their lives to make a difference. And uh, we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for, uh, thank you for all the people that's putting this together and helping us this morning, Lord. And uh, the rest of the week and all the things that's going on at Crossroads, even though we're separated. Uh, as we hear a thousand times a day, we're in this together. And... But the best part about it, Lord, we're in it together with you, and we thank you, and we just ask that you bless this message. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Encourage your children to watch Miss Chris's children's sermon on the website as well, and uh, I ask you to continue to pray uh, pray and stay connected if you can. Uh, on the Internet, on Zoom, uh, Chris's Monday Night Bible Study, also our ladies' group on Wednesday at noon. And I, I would also encourage you to do Zoom meetings with your group or even maybe start one yourself. Just get a bunch of people together and talk about stuff and pray for each other and on and on, you know. And you can contact Chris or Steve on how to set these Zoom meetings up. And again, I wanted to say that I applaud your generosity and your obedience at such a time as this. Power One, the power of one is the title of this message. In a world of 7.8 billion people, It's easy to feel lost among the statistics, but you are not a number. You are unique. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 17, King David explains God's concept of you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God, they are innumerable. There is no one quite like you in the entire world. You know, we see people sometimes that look similar, but nobody. It's amazing what God has done with 7.8 billion people, and none of us look exactly alike unless you're an identical twin. Even though you may feel insignificant from time to time, your life does matter. As author Edward Everett Hale said, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. The significant impact of only one. History and scripture are full of, peop- 
full of people who thought like Edward Hale, people of conviction, people um, of courage, people who made a difference. We can page and go back through the annals of history and who could possibly measure the unending shadow case by case by individuals who stood tall in their own lifetimes. Artists like Da Vinci, Michelangelo, military leaders like Grant and Lee and MacArthur and Eisenhower, statesmen like Washington and Lincoln, clergymen like Luther, Calvin, Wesley, heroic heroines like Joan of Arc, Madame Curry, Florence Nightingale, Amelia Earhart, and Corrie Ten Boom. This clip shows some of those people. Let's watch. incredibly courageous individuals, gifted geniuses, or people who held position of highest rank. And you may be thinking, but what about little old me? What, what difference can I make in this world in which I live? It's amazing what one ordinary person can make that can make a big difference. Just look at these examples. In 1776, one vote gave America the English language instead of German. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union. 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. In 1876, one vote gave Rutherford B. Hayes the United States presidency. And in 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. In Scripture, the Bible is not a book that simply chronicles sweeping crusades or mass movements. It is the story of individuals, people like us, you and I. Ordinary people who decided in their mind and their heart to do something, to make a contribution, to stand up and be counted. God much more so than the Marines is looking for a few good men and women. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those who, whose heart is his completely. Ezekiel 22.30 and I searched for a man among them who should build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land. 
that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. And then Psalm 106, 21 through 23. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This passage we see Moses' intercession, turning God's wrath away from destroying a rebellious generation. Moses couldn't do everything, but that didn't keep him from doing something. Nor did it keep Esther from doing something. We see now the essential intercession of Queen Esther. As you start reading the book of Esther, I'm sure you scratch your head a little bit. So what's this got to do with me? What's this got to do with life? But as it unfolds, we see God's inner working and, and some of the similarities in our own lives, actually. For Esther's people in Persia, that's where we left it last week, life turned bleak overnight in an instant. Because of a wicked plan born in the anti-Semitic mind of Haman, every Jew in the nation was suddenly living on borrowed time. It was like dead man walking, people that's going to be executed the night before. Dead man walking is them walking to the form of execution that they're going to use. This is, this is how the Jews felt, I am sure. Before the year was out, their epitaphs would be chiseled in stone. So we see this diabolical plan set in motion in Esther 3, 8 through 15, which we looked at last week. The capital city, Susa, is thrown into a state of confusion. The atmosphere is one of bewilderment and shock. Can this really be true? Can there be no appeal? Can there not be anyone who can change the plan, amend it, delay it, abolish it? It is something like you and I find ourselves in today. We first started hearing about COVID-19 and some of the things that was happening in China and other countries, and then it spread, and then it came here. And then you look at the map of the United States, it's, it's all over our country. It's altered millions of people's lives. It, it's just like this. And I'm sure some still haven't bought into it. They, they still don't really grasp it. But I tell you what, those people that have lost loved ones to this dreaded disease, they understand it fully. You know, for the Jews, the sky was falling and there was no place to hide. And we can close our eyes and almost hear the morning and weeping. Diane and I was in Germany a few years ago and we was in a Dachau concentration camp. It was a shock enough to see the barracks and some of the pictures and some of the experiments that Mengele had done on people. But when we walked into the gas chamber, it was like, can't explain it. It's still, it's fresh in my mind that you close your eyes and you can almost hear the souls of those people crying out to you. Mourning and weeping. The edict devastated the Jews, and every one of them who heard it cried out to God. I, I ask you this morning, as people of God, are you calling out to God today at such a time as this? Are you praying for God's intervention, whether it's for a cure, a vaccine, for those people that's lost loved ones, for people who've lost their jobs, people who are facing maybe even hunger or eviction in their homes. If, if there's a, a time in my life that ever elicited prayer, it's, it's now. 
It's, it, it's just at such a time as this, actually. We pick up the story in Esther 4, 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that he had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the command had de- and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Today, people of Eastern cultures do not restrain their grief. Funeral processions, you've seen them on TV, are, are public times of loud wailing and weeping. And you see crowds of people taking the body through the streets. No one hides their sorrow at tragic events, and Mordecai didn't either. It was common in those days to wear loose-fitting and dark-colored, coarsely woven garments made of goat's hair to signify repentance. Sitting in a pile of ashes was a way of showing bitter remorse. If you read the book of Job, he was just sitting in ashes, scraping his boils. So for Mordecai and the other Jews doing these things was an acknowledgement that they were in utter ruin, that they were at the end of their rope. They were between a rock and a hard spot, if you will, and that only God could restore them. You know, a lot of times we talk about the haves and the have-nots. Esther was a have. She lived in another world, a world of silks and satins, being pampered, ordering what she wanted to eat, having people wait on her, sheltered from the sorrow in the streets. That is, until news of her people's mourning reached her. Verse 4, Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. Esther Esther needed more information before she responded. Seeking a reliable source to explain this outburst of sorrow among the people, Esther sends a servant to question her cousin Mordecai. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay for the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction. That's verse... (coughs) Excuse me, that's verses 4 through 8. So in... The verses notice the following phrases. All that happened, exact amount of money, a copy of the text of the edict. So you see how carefully Mordecai passes on the information to Esther. He doesn't hide the truth, but neither does he exaggerate. He doesn't estimate numbers. He is exact. He doesn't pass on rumors. He provides her with document, documented information. So let's pause for a minute of application in our lives. Are you that careful in passing on information? Are you able to document your stories? Do you make sure of the facts that you're communicating? Do you add to or take away? Do you exaggerate? The problem is with this sometimes when we get into this, we can add or take away, and sometimes it turns into gossip, and that's got a very good good deal. Mordecai was careful to pass on accurate facts because he wanted 
the queen to be well informed and to understand the severity of the situation that they found themselves in. And he wanted her to be well informed because he wanted her to get involved. In fact, through Hathak, he ordered her to go to the king to employ his favor and to plead with him for her people. Verse 8. So undergirding Mordecai's plea for Esther's involvement was the belief that one person can make a difference. But Esther churned at the request. Imagine her mind and her stomach both was churning. Yes, there was her, were her people to think about, but there was also her own life. Verses 10 through 12. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, and that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter in which he may live. And I have not summoned, I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Now comes pleading and praying. Upon hearing her response, Mordecai is faced with a dilemma. Should he back off or should he add more pressure? With parental frankness, he sends a second appeal in verses 13 through 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He's reminding her that she's not there only but by God's design. Following the lines of reasoning first, Mordecai says, If you do nothing sooner or later, they will find out that you are a Jew and you too will be destroyed. Second, the Jewish race will survive. For God's promise to his people is greater than your willingness to be involved. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If he has to, God will simply use someone else. And thirdly, this turn of events could explain why you were elevated to such a high position. So Mordecai's power pack rhetoric is reminiscent of one of the fiery speeches of Winston Churchill delivered to the House of Commons on June 18, 1940 in London, in the UK. Let's watch. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit upland. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights 
of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Esther has the same opportunity the British people had during World War II. If she chooses to stand, this could be her finest hour. Her decision is found in the very next verses in 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. The king had chosen her to be queen because of her beauty. God had chosen her on the basis of her character. And now her character rises to the occasion with heroic resolve. If I perish, I perish. If I die because of this, I will accept that I will die. The words are, of the same spirit of Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. Or of Nathan Hale, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. But not only does Esther rise in heroism, but in leadership as well. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him to do. So you notice how Esther's entire outlook has shifted in the space of this chapter. From fear to faith from reluctance to resolve, from concern for personal safety to the concern for the safety of her people, and from respect for Mordecai's leadership to the emergence of her own. Always keep in mind that the personal involvement of each individual counts. And as our world becomes more and more crowded, it's easy to feel lost in the crowd or to underestimate our significance. We wonder sometimes what difference can we possibly make in the spread of such sprawling issues that we're faced with? Abortion, homelessness, crime, hunger, drugs, COVID-19, and the, and the Pandora's box that that has opened upon the world, upon us as Americans, and all the different issues that finger out from that. That God has us in this pandemic for a reason, to be used by Him. But one person can make a difference. Look at Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or James Dobson. Not only believe this is true, but we really believe we have to be willing to risk. And only when you and I move from the safe harbor of theory to the rough waters of reality will we actually see and change, see changes taking place. Until we come down out of the bleachers and we find ourselves walking out on the playing field and we ask God, with an honest heart and open arms. God, what do you want me to do? Do you really want to know how much difference one person can make? Scripture tells us that Jesus values one person so much that he's willing to leave the 99 sheep that are safe and go after the one that is lost, Luke 15, 3 through 7. For no matter how big the fold, one is always a valuable number to God. 
So, so right now, as we bring this to this application, what is God saying to you at this moment, at such a time as this, as you look at your family, as you look at your neighbors, as you look at your community, as you look at your state, your country, and the world? What, what God has a part for you to play in this whole scheme of things. So we ask Him, and I ask you, what is God saying to you? And then it comes down to this very important next question. What are you going to do about it? You just keep it in your mind and your heart where nothing gets done. Or are you actually going to allow the Holy Spirit to use you in a mighty way to be Jesus Christ in the face of what we're in at this time and place in our lives? Jesus Christ was God with skin on. He was amazing. I, I want to close with this last clip and then I'll pray. It really explains Jesus, and it's, it's interesting. It's you, you might understand or you might recognize this voice. It's the voice of Bing Crosby. Let's watch. You know, we're all so familiar with the story of Christ that I think perhaps we tend to forget how truly remarkable it is in its simplicity. There was a man born of Jewish parents in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman, he grew up in another obscure village. And he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held office, he never owned a home, he never had a family. He never went to college and he never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. And while still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, and he was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial, and his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. One solitary life. In a sense, that's you today in this world. Father, I love you. I thank you for these dear people. And Lord, I've said this often, as I have stood behind a pulpit or a music stand or a table, on this stage, and as I have looked out over these wonderful people that you've brought into Crossroads. And I can look and a huge cloud, a huge aura hangs over. We have so many gifted and talented people, it's off the chart. So right now, Lord, as we end this time together, as we spend time in each other's living rooms, I just pray, Holy Spirit, as you talk and grip people's hearts, 
at such a time as this that you might realize that they might realize what you want them to do, how to reach out to others, how to reach out to their family, how to be Jesus and show people the way that we have hope in our hearts regardless of what happens. We lift the situation up in your hands, Lord, and we just pray that we, as you speak to us, that we are obedient. We love you, God, and I love these people. Just bless them and keep them safe. I ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.